Well, good morning again. Have you ever been watching a movie or maybe a Broadway show and thought, this song sounds familiar? Haven't they already sung this before? I first remember having that experience as actually Jessica and I, my wife, when we were dating, we went to New York City to visit my sister who was living in Manhattan, and we went to go see Wicked. Uh, It's kind of a funny story. I'll tell you a longer version at some point if you want. But we showed up 20 minutes early to the Broadway show, uh, went to the box office. They said, we don't have your tickets. You actually purchased them from a vendor a mile down the road. Now, this this was summertime in New York City. I was in my mid-20s, and we were 20 minutes from showtime. It's New York City. You don't have a car. I was going to have to run and go pick up the tickets. So that's what I did. So I I ran a mile there, mile back, got back just in time for the start of the show, sat beside the the lady that I was dating. And this, this is my memory of that, watching Wicked, was just leaning forward and dripping sweat right in my lap the entire time. And we, were, we weren't married yet, so I was, I was embarrassed that she was seeing me like that. Um, I was embarrassed with the other person beside me to my right that was seeing me sweat. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough start. Thankfully, they had the AC going uh, to watch the show. And I loved it. I loved Wicked. That's like a little, little known fact about me. I love Broadway shows. Uh, but it was the first time I noticed I'd be listening to these it's like sensation overload, these amazing songs that are being sung. And I was like, that, that sounds a little bit familiar. Doesn't the tune sound like something that's already happened at the beginning of the show? And that's true. Yes, I think that's intentional. And there's a name for it. Matt Emmerich can, can tell me more about this, but it's called a reprise. It's when they bring back a song previously heard in the show, though slightly modified, And it's used to help the story progress, but also show continuity with what's happened previously in the story. And that happens in the Bible too. It happens in musicals. It happens in the Bible. There are certain events or situations where you think, as you're reading the Bible, this sounds familiar. Haven't I read this before? Just a few examples. Uh, Women meeting their husbands at a well. It's a common theme throughout scripture. If you read closely, you'll see that. Barren women, women who can't have children who are visited by angels. It's a common theme in scripture. Significant events occurring on the top of mountains. Just repeated events throughout scripture. The answer is yes. The Bible is not a bunch of isolated stories that we get to pick out and get a little moral lesson. But one big story by one divine author... God about how he is saving the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And like a good Broadway musical, he often repeats things to tell his story. So turn with me to Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4, this is on page 809 in your pew Bibles. Our sermon will be on the temptation of Jesus from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. But to give the full context, let's actually start in chapter 3, verse 13, with the baptism of Jesus. I think the two are meant to be read together. So I'm going to read in a second from Matthew, from Matthew 3, verse 13, through Matthew 4, verse 11. And again, it's setting up the encounter, this temptation of Jesus, this encounter, epic encounter, 
Jesus versus Satan, God's son versus the eternal enemy, who will emerge victorious? And if we're good Bible readers, there are probably some elements of this encounter that will be familiar to us. This is not the first time in scripture that God's son has been tested. So see if you can pick up on some of those things as we read, starting in Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sat him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. Let's pray one more time. Oh, gracious father, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus name. Amen. Way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Jesus placed Adam, his first son in a beautiful garden surrounded by delicious food, stunning animals, and he gave him a job to do, to work the garden, to name the animals, to have dominion over creation. Adam had perfect fellowship with his wife, Eve, and perfect fellowship with his creator and father. But one day, a sad day, that all changed. God gave him a test, a test to see if he would trust him, to test his complete and total dependence on him. He told him that he could eat the fruit from any tree in the garden with one exception, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A crafty serpent had slithered into the garden. This was Satan, the devil, the evil one. And he tempted Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. And they failed. They doubted God's word and believed the lies of the serpent and brought a curse on the rest of humanity. And that's what we suffer from to this day. 
But God was not done with his people. God proclaimed good news in the midst of this awful rebellion. One day, many years later, a son would be born to Adam and Eve's descendants, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of that crafty serpent, a son who would finally obey God perfectly, fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements. And the entire rest of the Bible is a story searching for that son, the one who would come and pass God's test. Adam had failed his test. Who would be next? Fast forward a few hundred years, the nation of Israel, the entire nation is also presented as God's son in scripture. And they are given the next test. God rescues them from slavery in Egypt through miraculous displays of his power and authority. We call this the Exodus and brings them out into the wilderness to worship him. He gives them his law, which at its core is a command to love and obey him with all their heart and to selflessly love each other. This was their test. Would God's people love and obey God, trusting his word completely? Would they pass their test? And 40 years of wilderness wandering, they failed over and over and over. They grumbled, they complained, they committed spiritual adultery and didn't trust God as their heavenly father. Adam had failed his test. Israel failed her test. How will Jesus do? My message has four points. I'll give them to you right now, but we'll, we'll say them as we go as well. Four points. Point number one, a test that had to happen. A test that had to happen. Number two, a test about what matters most. A test about what matters most. Number three, a test completely passed. A test completely passed. And finally, number four, a test richly rewarded. A test richly rewarded. So point number one, a test that had to happen. Look at verse one again, verse one in chapter four. This may be a bit surprising. Who was it that prompted Jesus to go into the wilderness and to be tempted? It said he was led by the spirit. This is God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's as if the Holy Spirit threw Jesus into the ring for battle. And this is immediately after his baptism. And isn't this how our spiritual lives often go? After extreme spiritual highs, we experience devastating lows. I think there's a lesson here. The more God pours his spirit and strength into your life, the more conflict will come. Comfort and growth can't coexist. Comfort and growth can't coexist. Christianity is a fight And the good news is that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So how about this tempting? The Bible is clear that God tempts no one. Those of us who have been doing our James study in the equipping class hour have been studying that. So God tempts no one, but he is sovereign over all temptation. Our temptations are included in his sovereign plan for our good. He doesn't tempt, but he does test. 
It was God through the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like Adam in the garden, or like Abraham who was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, or like Job, the most blameless and upright man alive, God brings testing to his children. And let's look at Job for a second. It wasn't that Job was a bad guy, but actually the opposite. It was because he was so righteous that God tested him. God's testing doesn't necessarily mean that you are in sin. Though it might. It might. I'm not sure. It could be God forming you, refining your faith. Or consider Abraham. He is the man of faith, the father of the faithful, And God tests him, asking him to sacrifice his son. Find comfort in the fact that your loving Heavenly Father will bring you exactly what you need, even if it's testing. There is a mystery here. Yes, it's a mystery. And we often don't understand the full scope of what what God is doing in the moment when we're in testing and trials. But we can trust him that he will work all things together for our good and for his glory. All things, the good things and the bad things, he will work together for our good and for his glory. So who's responsible for Jesus' testing? God. God is responsible. It was a test that had to happen. But there's someone else involved. Look at verse 1 again. There's another agent here. Satan is the one doing the testing. God might be sovereign over the testing and it is who drove Jesus into the wilderness through his spirit to be tested. But Satan is the one doing it. Satan is the prince of the kingdom in opposition to God. There are some Christians who have an unhealthy interest in the demonic, seeing Satan and his demons around everything that happens while there are others may have an unhealthy uninterest in it. Some make too much of the devil and some make too little of him. But the Bible's clear that there is a devil and there are demons. There are spiritual forces opposed to God and his people. It was true in the Old Testament. It was true in the New Testament and it's true today. But they are all under the sovereign control of our heavenly father. God is sovereign over all things, including the demonic. So God determined to test Jesus, and Satan was used to tempt Jesus. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. God is absolutely sovereign. Creatures are truly responsible for their actions. God is not the author of evil, but is sovereign over it and uses it for his good purposes. Those are all truths taught in the Bible. I can't fully connect all those dots. I can't fully comprehend it, but I can't accept it. That's the Bible. Sometimes we can see the good that God intended as we look back on our lives, but other times we can't. Think about times in your life where you you actually can see, well, that was a very hard time. I didn't understand it at the time, but years later, I see how I grew in this character quality or this virtue or was brought closer to God in the process. We can often see that. Sometimes we can't see that. We may never know exactly why God, God brought some things into our life. Our lives are like a big tapestry, and we're only able to see the backside, the side that's all, that's a tangled mess. But God is weaving all the threads together to make a beautiful piece of art. But we just don't have his divine perspective, and therefore we must live by faith and trust the divine artist.
Like I said earlier, although this is hard to comprehend, it can give us great comfort in our own testing and trials. God is totally in control. Nothing catches him off guard and you can trust him. He's proven himself over and over again in your life. Think back how often God has proven himself in your life. And he's proven himself over and over in history. Look no further than the cross. You can trust him even when you don't understand the test you're in because he has already dealt with your greatest need. What was that? Alienation from God due to your sinful rebellion. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's Romans 8, 32. Take comfort in the fact that God is sovereign over all things, including the tests and trials that come your way. And this is so hard to do in the midst of suffering and trials, isn't it? It's hard to trust God's sovereign plan despite difficult things. I've personally been so encouraged by our church. We are quick to ask others to pray for us when we face trials. I see it after the service every single Sunday and throughout the week. People praying with each other, sharing trials, sharing suffering. I personally benefited from many of you. We need each other to help us keep a godly perspective in the midst of devastating trials. They're disorienting. This church, Warnell Road Baptist Church, and the members here is one of the means that God has given you to keep your faith. Are you suffering right now? Maybe you are in a test or a trial right now. It can be disorienting. How about after the service today, ask someone to pray for you? And they would love to be able to do that. So again, Jesus' test was planned before the foundation of the world. God is the primary cause. Satan is the secondary cause, the means by which God accomplished his plan. So let's look more closely at the test God gave Jesus. So this is going to be point number two, a test about what matters most. A test about what matters most. But first off, as an aside, let's address something about Jesus' temptation. Have you ever thought, maybe as we were reading this, you were thinking this, wasn't Jesus' temptation easier because he was God? I mean, God can't sin, so wasn't it pretty simple for him to resist? Or maybe you have another thought. Doesn't the Bible say God can't be tempted? And you'd be correct on that. James 1.13 says that. It says God can't be tempted. So here's, here's a little bit of theology to set us up here. The Bible teaches that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. Two natures in one person. This is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. This is another mystery we may never be able to fully comprehend it. In fact, we will never be able to fully comprehend it because we don't have categories for a being that is two natures in one person. But we can faithfully accept it. And in order to reconcile us with God the Father, we needed a real human representative to pass the test that Adam, our representative head, had failed. In his humanity, Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. His temptations are real temptations. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We just read this as our assurance of pardon. 
For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus didn't pass his test using his divine attributes, but in his humanity, in his human nature, as a true human being, he was tempted as we are, in the same ways we are, yet he resisted all the way to the end. So he represents us before God as a merciful and faithful high priest because he knows through his human nature what it is to endure temptation. So in his humanity, Jesus' test is a real test and his temptations are real temptations. He knows the full extent of temptation even more than you or I do because he didn't give in but endured it to the end. Before we dig into each individual test or each individual temptation, uh, I, want, I want to notice one more thing. Look at verse 3 and verse 6. Verse 3 and verse 6. Verse 3 says, this is Satan here, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, I don't think Satan is denying what God had just declared at Jesus' baptism. Remember, God had just declared to everybody present, audibly speaking from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I don't think Satan's denying that that happened. It may be better said, since you are the son of God, Satan is saying, prove it. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan wants to find out what kind of son Jesus will be. Will he trust his heavenly father, believe his word, and follow the path he's laid out for him? Or will he doubt his father's goodness? Will he start to think, God is holding out on me. I know what I need to make me happy. All of these temptations, these three temptations we're about to look at, are an attempt to cause, de- to cause Jesus to disobey God and disqualify him from being our sinless savior. So let's look at each of the three in more detail. Each of the three temptations. Temptation number one from verses three and four. This is the temptation of self-sufficiency. The temptation of self-sufficiency. I'm going to read verses three and four again. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and Satan is asking him to break his fast. But how is he asking him to do it, tempting him to do it? Using his divine power for self-serving ends to distrust the provision of God and essentially be his own provider. In each of these temptations, Jesus responds by quoting from the same book of the Bible, from the book of Deuteronomy. He's intentionally linking his experience to Israel's experience in their wilderness wanderings. Here he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is a reminder that the real test is whether God's people will remain faithful to him throughout every need, their physical needs or their spiritual needs. Will they remain faithful to him? As dependent creatures, we must rely entirely on God for our sustenance. 
And spiritual nourishment always takes priority over physical sustenance. Someone will die physically without food and water. Jesus might have been close. I don't know how long you can go longer than 40 days, 50 days without food. Jesus was was close. It's pretty impressive. But people will die spiritually and be lost for all eternity without salvation. Like Israel in the wilderness who needed daily bread from heaven every single day, we need to depend entirely on God every single day. So let me ask you, where does Satan tempt you to depend on yourself and your own strength instead of depending on God, your heavenly father? Where does he tempt you to do that? I'll help you out. It's probably in the areas you feel most gifted. Be very careful in the areas you feel the most competent. This may be where you are most prone to self-reliance. Remember that dependence on God is the goal of the Christian life. Dependence on God is the goal of the Christian life. And if dependence is the goal, then weakness and incompetencies are actually an advantage. So that was temptation number one, the temptation to self-sufficiency. Temptation number two, the temptation to mistrust. Mistrust. Look at verses five through seven. I'll read those again. Starting in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord, your God to the test. Out of all the three temptations, this one's unique because Satan actually quotes scripture. He's quoting God's word from Psalm 91. We just read Psalm 91 in our service today. Satan is quoting Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. Because Jesus is the son of God, he should throw himself off the temple. After all, God has said in his word that angels will take charge over God's faithful people to keep them from harm. But this was a blatant misuse of scripture in an effort to manipulate Jesus. Why? Why was it a misuse of scripture? First, it is never right to to test God. It is never right to test God. God was there to 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 do the testing, not to be tested. There is no justification for provoking God by deliberately putting yourself in harm's way. Secondly, instead of trusting God, taking him at his word, Satan was tempting Jesus to prove God's reliability. This was a temptation to mistrust, not faith. Mistrust, not faith. So be careful. Just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean they're being faithful to God's word. Every heretic has a Bible verse. We need to not just be good Bible quoters. We need to be good Bible readers. Jesus knows and uses scripture better than Satan here. How well do you know scripture? Would you be able to spot error if somebody's using scripture? Satan's strategy has always been to misinterpret and misapply God's word. He did it in the garden of Eden with Eve. Did God really say? And this is his strategy now. 
Warnell wrote, be aware of false teaching. The New Testament calls false teachers wolves. They prey on us. They prey on us, the sheep. False teachers will not announce themselves. They won't come in with a black hat and a trench coat on and you think, wow, that must be a false teacher coming in here. Actually, in the book of Acts, it says they will rise up from among us. It will be one of us. Most are wearing sheep's clothing. They are attractive, good communicators, and probably even quote a lot of scripture. But here is one clear way to spot spot a false teacher. They lead people away from trust and reliance on God. They lead people away from trust and reliance on God and onto themselves. There's also an irony that Satan would pick this specific Psalm, Psalm 91, to tempt Jesus. The Psalm, as we read earlier, describes the confidence that believers have in God's provision and protection. But if Satan had just kept reading after verse 12, he would have seen that his own demise is prophesied in this psalm. Maybe, maybe flip to Psalm 91 in your Bibles again, Psalm 91. I thought this was pretty cool. Look at Psalm 91 verse 13. This is God speaking through the psalmist. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Again, remember the reprise, the repeated themes, the things we notice. Is there anything about that passage that is familiar to you? And the serpent you will trample under, underfoot. Does that remind you of Genesis 3.15, the promise that there will be a son born to Adam and Eve that will eventually crush the head of the serpent? One of the ways God will protect his people, according to this psalm, is through crushing the head of the serpent. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He is the promised seed from Genesis 3.15. And interestingly, this interaction with Satan is one example of how he is crushing, crushing Satan's head under his foot. It's kind of an ironic reversal. So let's look at how Jesus responds to Satan's temptation. He quotes again from the book of Deuteronomy, this time Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Testing God is an act of disobedience and a lack of trust in God. Once again, Jesus was tempted to mistrust God and rely on his own strength. Where are you most prone to mistrust God? Next temptation. Temptation number three. This is the temptation to idolatry. We've seen the temptation to self-reliance, the temptation to mistrust, and now the temptation to idolatry. Verses 8 through 10. I'll read, them, read it again. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan claims to be God and tempts Jesus to worship him. On first reading, this may seem strange. Can Satan legitimately offer all the kingdoms of the world and their glory? Was this a legitimate offer? Uh, This is debatable amongst some of the commentators I read, but I think it is. I think this is legitimate. 
Satan is the prince of the world because Adam lost that privilege in Genesis 3 at the fall. Satan has taken the role originally assigned to Adam. And this exactly is what Jesus came to regain. Satan still has access to the kingdoms of this world, but only to the extent that God and his divine sovereignty permits. God remains the master of all creation and of all creatures. And so he alone deserves our worship. Fear, reverence, and worship should only be directed to him. And then look, look how Jesus responds in verse 10. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 again, Deuteronomy 6, 13. Only God should be worshiped and served. And then Jesus essentially just dismisses the devil. He says, get out of here. I'm done with you. And the serpent slithers away. Jesus passed his test. He did it. And all creation realized the significance. Look at verse 11. God sent angels to come and minister to him. This little episode between God and between Jesus and Satan, it wasn't just a Bible drill. Uh, You know, Satan throwing out a verse, Jesus responding with another, almost like a, a duel. It had cosmic significance. All heaven knew the significance of this moment. And God the Father sent angels to his son to recover from his fight. Proving once again that God the Father is totally dependable to take care of his children. Each of these temptations is pointed specifically at Jesus' identity and mission as the Son of God. Satan attacks God's word, asking Jesus to prove what God the Father had just declared to him at his baptism. Satan wanted Jesus to live in his own power and not by faith, to essentially make himself a God in opposition to his heavenly Father. This would derail Jesus from his mission of being the obedient son. And here's the thing. Satan will always tempt you the same way he tempted Jesus. He will hear you profess that you are a son or daughter of God. And he'll say, prove it. He will twist and manipulate God's word and try to get you to doubt God's goodness. Every sin you struggle with at its root is always fundamentally about your view of God. Will you really live in trust and dependence on him? Or will you make yourself a functional God? On the surface, your temptations and your sin struggles may look like anger or pride or lust or coveting. But at their core, it's your heart doubting your status with God. This is why the New Testament writers, particularly Paul, stress our identity in Christ as the solution to our battle against sin. Think of places like Romans chapter 6. The New Testament ethic is essentially be who you are in Christ. Stop sinning. Why? Because you aren't a sinner anymore. And Satan desperately wants you to doubt your status. He says, but look at how you screwed up today. Are you really a new creation? Are you really free from sin? Prove it. Satan would love for you to base your identity on how you live and on your circumstances. You read your Bible every day this week. Good. God must really approve of you. You sinned this week. You got angry at your kids or you gossiped or you looked at pornography. God doesn't love you anymore. You lost your job. 
Doesn't that just prove he doesn't really care? I think sometimes we can think Satan's main work is the blatantly, obviously demonic, the occult, Ouija boards, demon possession. But Satan wasn't out in the wilderness making Jesus' head spin around. He was making him question God's presence and plan, making him doubt the goodness of God toward him. And that's his main work in your life as well. Taking your eyes off your heavenly father. So we've looked at who's responsible for Jesus' test, the nature of the test, doubting God's word and the status with the father. But now let's look at the how. How did Jesus pass his test? How did he do it? Point number three, a test completely passed. A test completely passed. Look back at Jesus' baptism in chapter 3. There are two resources mentioned at Jesus' baptism in verse 16 and 17. In verse 16, it's God's spirit that came down. In verse 17, it's God's word, his verbal declaration. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And these two weapons, God's spirit and God's word, are interrelated. It's God's word... His audible declaration, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, that tells Jesus his status before the Father. That he is the spirit-endowed servant king. And he sent Jesus his spirit, the Holy Spirit, as proof and empowerment for his mission as our substitutionary savior. Jesus was able to withstand the onslaught of the devil's temptations only because he'd been given God's word. And then he was given the power to achieve his mission, suffering unto death by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's word told him who he was and God's spirit empowered him to act the part. In scripture, God's word and God's spirit always go together. It's only by God's spirit that we can be changed by God's word. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to accomplish his rescue mission. The spirit empowered him to live the life we couldn't live perfectly obeying his father every step of the way. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, that's, that's really cool. I'm glad Jesus passed his test, but how's that going to help me? I wasn't there. That's, a, that's, that's history. But here's the thing. If you've trusted Jesus for, you, for your salvation, if you put your faith in Christ, you were there. In Christ, you defeated Satan there in the wilderness. And because of your union with Christ, he is in you. His spirit dwells in you to empower you to defeat Satan in your own temptations. You can pass your test in Christ. The same one who lived for you now lives in you. By faith in Jesus, the word made flesh, God says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. So Jesus began his ministry, passing God's test, but there would be more tests to come. And this is point number four, the last point, a test richly rewarded, a test richly rewarded. Throughout scripture, there's an interplay between a garden and wilderness, between the garden and the wilderness. We see it happen a few times in scripture. Ever since the fall In Genesis 3, we've been looking for the seed of the woman, a man born who would finally obey God perfectly, fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements. Jesus is that man. 
He's the second Adam, the true Israel, the man who heard God's word, trusted God's word, and obeyed God's word. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were surrounded by all the food they could ever want and all types of animals over which they had dominion. They had perfect fellowship with each other. In contrast, Jesus was in a barren wilderness. Instead of having all the food he could want, he'd been fasting for 40 days. Instead of having fellowship with a companion made just for him, he was alone. And instead of having dominion over the animals, he was surrounded by wild animals. The Gospel of Mark tells us. And like Israel in the wilderness, let's fast forward to a wilderness. Like Israel in the wilderness who wandered for 40 years before God brought them into the promised land, Jesus had been wandering in his wilderness for 40 days. Even all of Jesus' scripture references are from Deuteronomy, linking his account with the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Israel went from the waters of the Red Sea to their wilderness test. Jesus went from the waters of the Jordan River to his test. But instead of grumbling and complaining, tested, testing God, he trusted and submitted. With this decisive victory over Satan, the cosmic battle with the devil that began in the Garden of Eden was renewed. Satan's ultimate and final defeat is now imminent. It's coming. The strong man is bound. Time is running out for Satan and his evil forces. And after this battle, in verse 11, Satan squirms away. But this won't be the last time we see him. Three years later, Jesus would be tempted again. This time he's in another garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. And once again, he's alone. Abandoned by those closest to him. And when he looks at the horror that lies before him, drinking the cup of God's wrath, paying the full penalty for the sins of his people, in his humanity, he shrinks back. He begs his father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. But once again, the second Adam passes his test. He denies his own desire and submits once again to the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. And once again, God sends an angel to come and minister to him. But his life of total surrender and dependence was ultimately completed at the cross, where the decisive blow, the knockout punch, was delivered to Satan. At the cross, Jesus took the punishment that you deserved for the times that you have failed. Because on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst, he can bring you living water so you will never be thirsty again. Because he was abandoned, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will never be left alone. But that's not all. There's another garden. The garden where Jesus was buried. Three days after his death, on the first day of the week, some women came to the tomb where he was buried to anoint him with oil. I don't think it's an accident that in the Gospel of John... One of the women, Mary Magdalene, actually mistakes Jesus for a gardener. It's as if he looked like Adam, the first gardener. He's alive. The perfect God-man, the blessed son of God, risen from the dead. Jesus is showing us that he is the last Adam, the true gardener. And just as Jesus was affirmed by God the Father with the declaration, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased at his baptism, God declared to the entire world that he accepted his son's 
perfect life and sacrificial death by raising him from the dead. This was Jesus' vindication, his justification. He had succeeded. Where all before him had failed, he had obeyed God perfectly to the end. And he would be richly rewarded by his father. He'd be brought to the right hand of God the Father, enthroned as king for all eternity. But there's one more garden mentioned in the Bible at the end of history. In language reminiscent of the Garden of Eden in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth coming down are described in imagery and language that comes from the beginning of Genesis. There's the river of life again. There's the tree of life again. And this is the consummate and ultimate hope for you if you are in Christ. If you have put your trust in this faithful and merciful Savior, you will be with Jesus forever in this eternal garden, reigning with him, ruling with him forever. This heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, God will dwell with you in intimate fellowship for all eternity. Oh, how I long for that day, don't you? Jesus passed his test and earned a place for you in blessed, happy communion with his father forever. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the plan that you've had from all eternity to save us in Christ. We thank you that you are in control of all things and you use testing to build our faith. Thank you for Christ, the perfectly obedient son and the life we have in him. May we look to him when we face our own temptations and trials. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.